So last week in our scripture, we heard about the Passover meal, eating quickly, eating that unleavened bread. Um, this was what the Israelites had observed before uh, the night before they escaped from Egypt. After that night, they traveled to and through the sea and then into the desert with God leading them in a pillar of fire to light the way by night and a cloud by day. When they arrive at Mount Sinai, Moses made several trips up and down the mountain to speak with God, receiving the Ten Commandments and many other laws and instructions for how this new group of people were supposed to live together. How were they supposed to do community now that they were experiencing freedom? The story we'll hear today happens during the fourth trip that Moses takes up the mountain, which lasted for 40 days and for 40 nights, as God and Moses spoke to one another. Among the instructions given to Moses on this occasion was the call for the people to make an offering of precious metals and stones and fabrics for the building of a temple a movable temple where God could dwell with the people wherever they were with its furnishings, the Ark of the Covenant, the priest's clothes, and the altar. As God is finishing up giving this command and asking for these supplies to be given, um, Moses is preparing to take those tablets down to the people. Today's story takes place. For the people of Israel, we have to understand that this God was still a bit of a mystery to them. They had seen God's actions in parting the Red Sea and in the provision of manna and quail, that food that they would consume in the desert. Um, but God seemed somewhat distant to the Israelites. That was especially the case when Moses left them to head up to the mountain and commune, commune with God for well over a month. Where was Moses? Moses was at least someone they could relate to. Moses was a sort of intermediary between the people and God, and, and not having Moses around led the people to become a bit restless. They could look up towards the top of the mountain, seeing it covered in smoke and fire, and, and wonder what in the world was going on up there on top of that mountain. They wanted to know if that was a God for sure. So Aaron decides to have all of the people collect all the gold among them. He is going to fashion a golden calf. He decides to make an altar for the Lord and the people see this as a representation of the one that brought them out of Egypt. One commentary I read this week said that this was not necessarily an altar to God. Uh, while we have the little G in scripture and it's plural, they still use the same word Yahweh that they described God with the capital G um, in building this altar. The Israelites had spent years with the Egyptians and mingled with other cultures uh, that had physical representations of their gods. So they thought that's what they needed to do here. This was their version of God. But the problem is that they contained God in this form. God was not a free being that was enveloped in mystery, but it was now just this golden cow. That's what's wrong here, not 
so much that they were worshiping an idol, but that they they were worshiping a false version of God, which really is an idol. They wanted a God that would live among them, something that they could touch and see and feel and control. And the calf was a way for God to be with them. But it was wrong for so many reasons. First, it was initiated by humans and not by God. Second, the humans decided to describe God instead of allowing God to define God. Third, um, and this is perhaps the most important and something I've always missed in this story, is that God was working on a place, a tabernacle, where God would dwell with the Israelites. God was making plans to be closer to the people if they just had the patience to wait. Uh, Let them construct a sanctuary for me so that I can live among them, God tells Moses in chapter 25. From Exodus 25 until 31, we have God giving Moses instructions on what this tabernacle would look like. The people were nervous and worried and created an avatar, if you will, a representation of God. And all the while, God was at work finding a way to live among the people. If they had only been patient and waited. What was familiar was the worship that they had enacted out by their neighbors to their pagan gods. Because of what was familiar was something tangible, which they could relate to rather than an invisible God that told them to worship without images. We, we all want something to hold on to, especially in the hard times and in the waiting times. But what's tangible often takes our eyes off God rather than drawing us to God. We want leaders like Moses who intercede with God on our behalf because the alternative is approaching God ourselves, which brings out our own insecurities and fears. We want rituals and institutions which will tell us exactly what to do and and guide our every step, allow us to feel comfortable in the face of an uncomfortable and challenging God. We want symbols of God rather than actually God too many times because God is so much more than our minds can fathom. But the worship God requires, the interactions God desires, are not about ritual, especially ritual for just ritual's sake. It's not about comfort and normality. Everything that was recognizable about Egypt was gone. Both the oppression of slavery as well as the ordinary day-to-day life. Everything in their world had become new, had turned upside down. The silent God of their ancestors had seemingly reestablished the relationship and a leader had emerged to speak on God's behalf. But now it's easy to feel that God and Moses have abandoned them. It's important to remember that this is a budding relationship. Each party is learning to trust the other. The Israelites have seen the hand of God and the power of the plagues, the parting of the sea, and the provision of manna and quail that they ate. And and then there's Moses, the strange leader and liberator who speaks their language but sounds and acts like an Egyptian. 
who questions his own calling and who but who still radiates a, a vibrant friendship with God. Moses speaks on God's behalf, but they had to be asking, do we really trust him and do we really trust that he speaks for God? God crafts a covenant with the people in Exodus 19. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. You shall be my treasured possession. Beloved, you shall be my beloved people. However, Moses has been up on the mountain too long. He's living in the clouds, soaking up the glory of God, listening to God's dream for how the relationship will grow. Here's an abstract of of some of those dreams that God is sharing with Moses while the people are floundering down below. I will dwell among my people in a tent, a tapestried tent, lavished with royal color and abundant fruit design. My people will come to me as the wealth of the earth. They will be born on the clothing as precious stones. We will eat bread by the light of the oil of my presence. We will take delight in the aroma of one another and cherish each other. My people will be my treasured possession and I will be theirs. This is taken from portions of Exodus 24 through 31, but it sounds a little like a a sappy love poem, but but in reality, it's God's words about God's beloved children and, and what God would dream for this relationship. God eagerly desires the relationship, and Moses is anxious to to convey it to God's God's beloved people. But Moses has been gone too long, and the people doubt. Whispers begin to echo through that wilderness that they're in. What happened to Moses? Did he desert us? Did a wild animal devour him? (laughs) What do we do now? And so a false answer emerges from these questions. When you doubt, return to what you know. When you fear, go back to the beginning. When you question, fall back on the old ways. Build a bowl, a golden bowl. Oops. Okay. Build a bowl, a golden bowl, just like the ones back home in Egypt. If we can't see the unseen one who brought us to this wasteland, we'll rely on what we can see and touch and taste. We can't trust the unknown. And God's heart hurts. It won't be the last time God's beloved people doubt the faithfulness of the one who who connected God's self to them in a promise, a covenant promise. God's commitment to God's beloved people is tested time and time again throughout scripture and throughout all of time. God desires to be in a relationship of love with God's beloved people. A relationship of trust with partners trusting and trustworthy. Both partners. But God knows God's beloved people are skittish, wounded people. Slavery has taken over them. It's built into their memories. It's rooted into their rhythms of being and doing. They build an idol to trust what they know, what they can see. The simple solution for God would be to start over, 
Moses is faithful. He's right there. Moses trusts. Do an early annulment, cancel that covenant, start over with Moses, and, and maybe he'll get right what these beloved people seem to, to not be able to get together. But God's mind is changed. Be faithful to the very ones who are unfaithful to you. Show them what trustworthiness is like. Be a God who is faithful to a people who can't be trusted. Moses says to God, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on the people. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply their descendants like the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your descendants. God doesn't love from a distance. God cherishes God's beloved people, desires love in return. But know that knows that coercion or manipulation will only copy the long-suffering slavery of Egypt. It's the same way with us. Thus, God's perpetual wooing of a wounded people in spite of their perpetual fear of commitment. And people of the kingdom know that God's wooing of us continues, drawing us into the heart of God, trusting us to trust the one who poured himself out on our behalf. We are in our own kind of wilderness this morning where nothing feels familiar and it feels like it's going on too long. The desert of having to wear a mask, worrying if constantly if you or, or your loved ones will get sick, agonizing over decisions, when and where to go in public, and what's best for your children, yourself, and the, the older and more vulnerable people in your life. What will happen to your job and, and to our economy? And it's exhausting. It's exhausting to navigate teaching and learning and working through a, a completely different medium of Zoom and technology and video conferencing or, or learning how to do our jobs while we're still somewhat separate from each other and in isolation. Our church entered this season knowing that we needed to grow we, you, had already been through multiple seasons of change. We were ready to move forward. And that's been halted in some ways. The worship and the community that we knew is no more. It's all different. Mosaic did community really well. I'm not saying that we don't now, but we used to, we, we did it really well before. We recognized that last fall when we were talking about what makes us us. We had fun together, and we have not had a chance to, to have fun together in a while. Just when we thought we were done asking the tough questions about our church, we're faced with more. What really is worship? Can, can we do it through Zoom like this? How do we hear God speaking through this new medium? And what does it mean for a church that does in-person community really well 
to not be able to do in-person community like we used to do. In our lives, it would be easier to just go back to what we know, to fashion idols, to lift up political leaders that will get us out of all of this, that that have all the answers, to expect them to, to lift up policies that will fix everything, to try to go back to our lives before March, to try to numb ourselves to or soothe ourselves and, and make us feel comfortable by just going back to the things that we knew before, things that brought us comfort and purpose. Um, there's nothing totally wrong with comfort and purpose, obviously, but God can do something in this time of the desert and this time where we're out of balance if we only have the patience to wait and look for his presence in new ways. In our church, if it would be easy to think we could fix what feels like it's missing by just doing the old things. And we will do some of those old things. But we're a new church and a different kind of world that will not go back to what it was. What if we were to wait and see what God will do? What if we had a holy curiosity about what our life will look like in the future and a hope for a, for a new place and a new kind of society? Our God is a God worthy of worship. Even in this desert, don't lose sight of that. Don't give in to the temptation of, of building idols out of what we know, out of what we were, but allow God to be present amongst us in this new way, teaching us new things and being the constant, being a God who is worthy of worship. Will you pray with me?